If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. You're listening to The Michael Shermer Show. Hello, everyone. This episode of The Michael Shermer Show is brought to you by Brilliant. Brilliant is an online platform that I've been using for quite a while now. I really enjoy it, and you would, too. Go to brilliant.org slash skeptic, and you will get a a free 30-day trial, and the first 200 of you will get 20% off the annual subscription. What is it? It's a subscription to a learning slash teaching platform with easy-to-follow lessons. Even a non-physics person like me can take a a lesson. I've been doing the physics, astrophysics uh, course uh, and lessons on, um, you know, gases and solids and liquids, gravity and how it works. This one is on the flat earth. This is really relevant because we've debunked the flat earthers here, but how do you know that the earth is not flat? And so they explain how we know on this easy to do lesson, And then they give you a little quiz. The circular shape of the earth's shadow seems like irrefutable evidence for a spherical earth, but is this observation robust to flat earther scrutiny? So, yes, a round shadow could only be observed with a spherical Earth, or no, a round shadow could be observed with a flat Earth. I'm going to put the second one there because, and I'm correct, because the Earth uh, could be round and flat like a pizza, and if it happened to be like this, casting a round shadow on the moon during an eclipse, then that would not uh, disprove the flat Earthers. That's how they think, (laughs) but it's a great teaching tool. Uh, for going through simple things like that. So check it out. Go to brilliant.org slash skeptic to get your free 30-day trial. And the first 200 of you that log in will get 20% off the annual subscription rate. Check it out, brilliant.org slash skeptic. All right, here's our uh, episode. Okay, my guest today, the returning champion, Dr. Paul Halpern, is the author of 18 popular science books exploring the subjects of space, time, higher dimensions, dark energy, dark matter, exoplanets, particle physics, and cosmology. The recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Fulbright Scholarship, and an Athenaeum Literary uh, Award. He has contributed to Nature, Physics Today, Aeon, Nova's The Nature of Reality, Physics Blog, and Forbes Starts with a Bang. I'm guessing that has to do with the Big Bang. (laughs) As well as on Friday, uh, Science Friday, and Radio Times, and so on. Oh, he's also been on Coast to Coast, AM, one of my favorite uh, conspiracy and (laughs) UFO shows. (laughs) Uh, let's see. He's also appeared pre- previously on the show for his book, Synchronicity, the Epic Quest to Understand the Quantum Nature of Cause and Effect. Here's the new book, The Allure of the Multiverse. Uh, it is uh, describes the controversial higher uh, history of higher dimensional and parallel universe schemes in science and culture. And you can read more about this at allureofthemultiverse.com. That's at the allure of the multiverse. 
Um, okay, Paul, nice to see you again. How are you doing? Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me back again. <laughs> so what's the, uh, what, what's, is there, are, are there new findings here or is this just a new subject for you that you got interested in, in addition to your previous works? Well, it's become such a popular interest recently with all the films out there about the multiverse and TV series. Uh, Loki season two has been very popular. What if, uh, everything everywhere all at once. It just seems oh, like we're right. being bombarded with popular images of the multiverse and in terms of findings, uh, it just seems that in recent years, I guess in past couple of decades, there have been more and more prominent figures who've come out and said, look, it would be good if we could solve all the problems in physics in our own universe, but perhaps we should be open-minded and consider the possibility that our universe is one of an ensemble of other universes out there, as strange as it sounds, and also as, uh, you know, in a way, you know, not perfect in terms of in trying to make observations of everything. In, in theory, we would like to be able to observe everything in the universe, but in practice, there may be aspects of the universe or even other universes that might remain outside of observability. Oh, interesting. So if we do a, um, a, a kind of a epistemological breakdown uh, via Donald Rumsfeld, we have the known knowns, the things we know we know. Then there's the known unknowns, the things we know we don't know, but we will know. Are you suggesting that there's known unknowables, that they're just things we may never be able to get at? Well, I think, I think there are definitely things that we can never get at, even if we don't believe in the multiverse, just because of the speed of light. So all of our information is bounded by this speed limit in space. And the fact is that we can only pick up signals from a radius within light can reach us. If light cannot reach us and no other signals can reach us, then pretty much we're stuck uh, not knowing about those things. Yeah, so then what makes us think that there is such a thing as the multiverse? And let me tee it up this way. I like the idea because it's sort of the natural extension. Here's what I wrote. Uh, I, I was working on my chapter in my next book using your book. Um, anyway, <laughs> finally, from what we now know about the cosmos, universe, multiverse, or whatever it turns out to be, to think that this is all, that all this was created for just one species among tens of millions of species who live on one planet circling one of a couple hundred billion stars that are located in one galaxy among hundreds of billions of galaxies, all of which are one universe among perhaps an infinite number of universes all nestled within a grand cosmic multiverse is provisionally insular and anthropocentrically blinker. It's not all about us. Now, the reason I wrote that is because theists will say, well, you know, you got, you got, you got to take the causal chain back and stop it somewhere. We stop at God and, you know, the fine tuning argument and all that stuff. So we counter with, well, the multiverse There's multiple universes. They have different laws of nature and we just happen to be in one of those. And they go, that's just, that's your faith. You don't know, and you'll never know. That's no different than our faith, and so we're both faith-based. How do you respond to something like that? Well, I've interviewed for my book so many different uh, prominent figures, from Nobel Prize winners to prominent astrophysicists, and I was kind of surprised by the reaction. Uh, some people, of course, were absolutely against the idea of the multiverse. Uh, the late uh, Stanley Dezer, uh, who... Uh, you know, who was a prominent in supergravity, 
and all sorts of things that are undetectable, uh, sent me an email back and said uh, he was kind of in his, as it turns out, his final months of life. He he, uh, lived into his 90s and his email was just, there's enough, and I'm going to use a word from Yiddish, enough Soros in our universe to deal with. So he meant enough, Mm. it means enough pain or woe. And uh, in our universe, why consider other universes? On the other hand, uh, Virginia Trimble, a uh, prominent astrophysicist whose you know, specialty has been observable things and you know, observation time on telescopes and making, uh, con- reaching conclusions based on those, uh, was very quick to say, look, every time we wondered about things that are out there that we don't observe, they've turned out to be correct, starting with beyond the solar system, you know, are there other stars? And then now we know that there are planets around other stars. We couldn't observe them in our lifetime. You know, when I was a kid, everybody said nine planets. And uh, now they say thousands of planets and, you know, likely trillions of planets. You know, we just can't see all of them. Um, So every time we've speculated about things um, and said, well, what if something else is out there? Uh, not every time, but a lot of times we speculate about things. It's turned out to be true. So I try to remain open-minded, especially because figures such as you know Steven Weinberg, the late uh, Nobel laureate, was very open to the idea of a multiverse and, in fact, advocated it and caused a lot of controversy that way. Um, so it it is a controversy, but the fact is... There are so many things in physics now that are not directly observable and things that we take for granted, such as the idea of the strong force and the weak force. We don't directly detect those with our senses. We use models and the models all point to the idea of these two forces in the atomic nuclei and we all believe in it, even though we don't directly experience those forces. So there are a lot of things in physics that are indirect observations. Plus, quantum mechanics tells us that we can't observe everything at once and that everything is based on these abstract entities called quantum states, which we can never directly observe. So there's just so much that is not directly observable. The question is, do we exclude the idea of universes themselves that are not directly observable? And that's an open question. And I respect Mm. both sides of that uh, argument. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the Copernican principle that we're not special. If you apply that to everything that does make sense for planet planetary formations, assuming planetary formations are a natural process like we have in our own, then they should be all over the place. And in fact they are. So that would be one of those inferences that then turns out to be testable and tested uh, positive in that sense. So why not expand that to galaxies and then universes? If universes are born out of, let's say, collapsing black holes or some some such thing, I don't know what I'm talking about when I say this. So you can you can elaborate on that. But something about collapsing to a singularity and it out pops another un- bubble universe or some such thing, then then universes should be naturally forming all over the place. Yes, or something like that. Yes, that's interesting. You're talking about Lee Smolin's hypothesis. Uh, Lee Smolin talked about an evolution of universes, uh, but uh, Lee, as far as I know today is not um, interested in ideas of 
higher dimensional realities or string theory and so forth, which is fine, you know, but I find that a lot of physicists um, have their own hypotheses, their own hypothetical ideas that might not be directly testable, but then look at other theories and say, hey, wait a minute, we need testability for those theories. So uh, if we apply the same standard that you need all theories to be directly testable, then that would really narrow down a lot and and you would be back to Einstein's conclusion that everything should be deterministic, everything should be local, everything should have an objective reality. And we know from quantum mechanics that that can't possibly be true because we have these these wave functions or quantum states that are out there that we don't measure except through indirect measurements, not directly measuring these quantum states. Are, are there truths to be derived just through mathematics where you could say, for example, the multiverse comes out of the equations, even if it's not presently testable, there's good reasons to believe it's true because of the whatever mathematical elegance or power or beauty or something like that? Yes, well, that that is an argument that's made, and, and uh, it's fascinating that Albert Einstein, in developing the general theory of relativity, did not base his arguments initially on testing, observability, or anything like that. He came up with a theory that satisfied certain mathematical and logical principles, and that turned out to be the case. Um, and general relativity predicts uh, that the universe should be infinite. Uh, if it's flat, it should be infinite, according to general relativity. Now, we can never prove that. How can you prove that something is infinite? And we have a radius of observation in our universe beyond which telescopes cannot detect, and that is about 46 billion light years in radius. So beyond that, we just assume, okay, if the universe is has a flat geometry, meaning kind of like a box extended in all directions, in our enclave, we assume that that's going to continue beyond the observable. But someone could say, hey, wait a minute, we don't know what's out there, so the universe could just end beyond observability. We can't prove it one way or the other. We just assume it based upon the mathematical idea of continuity that we expect that if something is true within our observable universe, probably is true, at least for a certain region beyond that. You mentioned 46 billion years. Can you explain how you get that number? Because the universe is 13.8 billion years old, right? So if we're, if we're in the center, as it were, uh, uh, in terms of observations, wouldn't it just be double that? Then 27, you know, something, or 20, uh, close to 28 billion years would be the total, uh, I don't know what, this, the, the diameter or the radius of the sphere? That's an excellent question. And uh, the question is, why is the observable universe so big today? It has to do with the expansion and, in fact, the accelerated expansion of the universe. So it's a little bit like if a football player is standing still and throwing you a football, you can kind of estimate their distance and you know that they're, they're a certain distance away based upon the speed that they throw the football but then if you said, well, what if they're running away from you at a super high speed and they throw the football at you and then they run away from you 
at an extraordinary speed, and you say, oh, well, they must be about 10 feet away because their speed is about 10 feet per second, and it took about a second for me to get the football. But in fact, they could be much farther away than that because they are running away from you. Similarly, all of the galaxies are running away from us. So they send off light, that light starts traveling toward us, and then meanwhile, the galaxies are moving extremely far away. So in a sense, we can see galaxies that are well beyond this 13.8 billion light-year radius because they've moved so much further away from us that we we know that they're out there, uh, and that greatly increases the size of the observable universe. I see. Now, in a Big Bang explosion, explosions slow down. I mean, explosions on Earth anyway. The energy dissipates and so on. Why is the explosion expansion accelerating? Well, that is a big question. So uh, if there wasn't something called dark energy, which is a mysterious substance that acts as a kind of anti-gravity, then the universe would eventually uh, start slowing down or it would have been slowing down already. But amazingly, in 1998, uh, two teams of researchers looking at distant supernova discovered that the universe is in fact speeding up in its expansion. And because it's speeding up in its expansion, it's never going to slow down as far as we know, unless it does you know, about face at a certain point, but it's going to just keep expanding forever as far as we know. So that is a real big mystery. And the question is, what causes this dark energy? What causes this anti-gravity? And one model for it is to imagine something called a cosmological constant, which is a term that Einstein uh, originally proposed to stabilize the universe, but then eventually discarded But then after 1998, physicists such as Michael Turner and others revived the idea of the cosmological constant and said, well, there's something out there which is pushing the universe faster and faster away from each other. You know, galaxies faster and faster away from each other, expanding the universe faster and faster. But we don't know what it is. And strangely enough, vacuum energy, which is the energy of all the particles splitting in and out of empty space has also has an effective cosmological constant. You can estimate that. And that's incredibly higher than the cosmological constant needed to propel the universe's accelerated expansion. And that's one of the big mysteries. Why is the cosmological constant that we measure through expansion and its acceleration so much lower than the cosmological constant that we estimate by all the energy out there in the universe that we know about. And that's where one idea for a multiverse comes in. We say, well, maybe we're an outlier. Maybe we're a really, really, really unusual universe. And there's an ensemble of universes out there with all different cosmological constants. And some of them are really, really high. Some of them are medium. And we happen to have the baby you know, low cosmological constant. We just happen to be in a universe with a tiny cosmological constant because that way the universe's expansion could remain fairly constant for a while and that would lead to galaxies, stars, planets 
and life as we know it. And if we didn't have a tiny cosmological constant, we wouldn't be talking today. We'd be in a universe that exploded in acceleration and size uh, billions of years ago, and nobody would be here to talk about it. <laughs> You're right. Something like the anthropic principle there, at least the weak version of that, that uh, we have to be in this kind of universe or we'll, we wouldn't be here talking about it. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, so like on the, uh, again, like on the cover of your book, you have these bubble universes, or I think that's what they're supposed to be. Um, and that would sort of correspond to the, the Lee Smolens model that we talked about earlier, where these little bubbles are uh, erupting. There's new big bangs out of collapsing black holes or whatever it is. But so explain that. How did they not collide with each other or could they collide with each other and you'd get some kind of ripple effect from gravitational waves and you could detect them or some such thing? Where are they expanding into? <laughs> well, the idea of baby universes from black holes is, is you know, a, a viewpoint held by uh, a handful of physicists. Uh, more prominently is the viewpoint of Andre Linde, who developed what is called eternal inflation. And inflation is a model designed to smooth out the universe by having a period in its early history of ultra-rapid expansion, very, very fast, you know, a trillionth of a second or less uh, era of ultra-rapid expansion. And to trigger that, Andre Linde found that if you had a special type of energy field, you could easily trigger that in the early universe or any time in the universe. And it's just very, very easy to trigger. You just have to have this a special type of energy field, which is very, you know, fairly easy to produce. And Andre Linde soon thereafter discovered that um, because it's so simple to produce this trigger for super rapid expansion, inflation must happen, you know, ubiquitously uh, all the time, everywhere, and there must be a sea of bubble universes. So you don't need black holes necessarily mm. to produce these bubble universes. You could have a completely empty universe, a vacuum universe, but just through quantum randomness, a scalar field, scalar field just is a technical term for a field that has a single value at every point in space, emerges. And if it has a certain property, uh, it will uh, suddenly trigger that region to experience ultra-rapid expansion, and that region will become its own universe. The empty vacuum universe. So where's the stuff that bangs? Where does that come from? Well, you start, let's say, with a singularity. Um, that would be the Big Bang. And at that point, uh, you have this expanding universe uh, but you don't really have much material in it. But in any kind of vacuum, according to quantum physics, the uncertainty principle says that something can arise from nothing if you have a small enough quantity of it and it, if, if it pops in and out rapidly enough. So it's, it's Heisenberg's principle that the uncertainty in energy times the uncertainty in time is a very small number. So if you have a bit of energy that exists for a, a fleeting moment, it can just pop out of nothing. And the uncertainty principle says that's perfectly valid to have that violation of conservation of energy as long as it happens briefly. But 
if you have this this energy popping out of nothing and that energy triggers an expanding region of space, then suddenly that region blows up and that creates a lot more energy because you have all this energy, gravitational energy of expansion. So you have more energy coming out of nothing. So it's strange. The universe doesn't have a fixed budget, uh, especially in the early universe. Uh, It has the possibility of producing a colossal amount of energy from nothing. And once that space expands and, you know, to a certain point, and then the expansion stops or actually slows down to ordinary expansion. So you go from super rapid expansion to an ordinary rate of expansion. There's a whole lot of energy that's released and that turns into the form of particles. And that's where the particles we see around us was produced. Uh, and um, that is called the process of reheating. And that is a standard model of inflation, which most cosmologists and astrophysicists believe in. But since that can happen in you know any region of space-time, and it's so easy to happen, so easy to transpire, that's why many people who believe in inflation also believe in the idea of internal inflation, which means you have all these bubble universes and we're one of many bubble universes out there. Amazing. These words that you throw out there, I mean, in science, they have technical meaning. But to the average person, you know, when you say nothing, you're just picturing, well, nothing. And you say, well, there's vacuum energy. It's like, well, that's not nothing. There's actually something there. So they would want to, well, just take the vacuum energy out. You don't get that either. But maybe you're saying you have to start somewhere and as far as we know, there is no such thing as nothing, no thing. There's vacuum energy at, at the very minimum. Something like that? Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say, you know, vacuum without saying, well, what is a vacuum? You say as empty as possible. So the idea of nothing in space is really, according to quantum physics, an unrealistic idea. So we really don't have in quantum physics complete emptiness. We have as close to empty as possible which involves all of these uh, quantum fields that are popping in and out of existence. So that's as close to nothing as we can get, but it's still something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, this whole idea of nothing, just riff on that for a minute. You know, no thing, well, you've just identified a thing that can't exist, so you, you actually have an idea of, of nothing, which itself is something. So, you know, again, we're, we're limited by cognition, language, the structure of our brains, how we think of concepts or whatever. There's some epistemological wall we're going to hit when we go back in which at some point I don't even know what I'm saying when I say no <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> yeah, and well, the thi- <laughs> it's funny that things things go around in cycles. And in the 19th century, with the idea of electromagnetic waves developed by Maxwell, almost every physicist said, well, there must be an ether out there because waves can't travel in sheer nothingness. You must have something that is waving, something that is vibrating uh, for light to pass through, just like sounds needs air or another material. Light needs something too. So when really until the early 20th century, everybody believed that there must be some ether out there. And Albert Einstein radically said, well, let's just ignore the idea of ether and dismiss it and just assume that there is sheer emptiness. And he believed in the idea of sheer emptiness, except for geometry, you know, this idea of, of 
flat space-time or curved space-time, but there was no material there. But now physicists would say, hey, wait a minute, it's really not empty. There is something out there, and that's the vacuum energy. So we've gone full circle. They won't call it the ether because that's passe, but it's vacuum energy. Oh, that's that's so interesting. All right, let's move beyond just the bubble universes that we've been talking about. What are some of the other versions of the multiverse? Well, you have like taxonomy in your first chapter. <laughs> well, as I mentioned in my book, the term multiverse greatly precedes modern physics and uh, was introduced by William James, who was trying to describe the idea of a universe that as agnostic to good and evil does, doesn't make up its mind as far as good and evil is concerned and has these two qualities and completely indifferent, impartial, and he called that a kind of multiverse. Uh, but, of course, that's not the modern term. Um, the modern term uh, came about starting in the late 20th century, and that was triggered by proposal by Hugh Everett, who was a graduate student at Princeton, and he was there in, in the late 1950s, and working with a great physicist called John Wheeler, who was open to all these radical ideas, as long as they had some connection with physics. He called it radical conservatism, the idea that you start with the laws of physics, but then you try to push them as much as possible. And Wheeler was perplexed by the idea that in standard quantum physics, you need an observer, and uh, Niels Bohr's model uh, called the Copenhagen interpretation, imagines somebody looking into a box or observing a box, a black box, and just saying, well, I take a measurement, something comes out, and that's reality. And uh, a lot of people were disturbed by that, you know, even at that point, because the question is, you know, why not consider the fact that human beings are made of atoms too? Why should human beings have their own powers to observe, you know, their own properties. And after all, they're part of the universe too. But Niels Bohr's model, as codified by another great physicist, John von Neumann, um, imagines somebody taking a measurement and a wave function collapses and turns into physical reality based on that measurement. And depending on the decision made by the observer, the collapse can happen in different ways. Well, um, somebody who was very skeptical of that, that, that idea was Hugh Everett, who probably went to a, one of Einstein's last talks where Einstein said, well, in quantum physics, and Einstein was very dubious about quantum physics, he said, well, what if a mouse tries to observe something? Will the mouse trigger it to collapse? You know, So Einstein was trying to make fun of the idea of humans causing things to collapse in quantum physics. He thought that everything needed to be perfectly objective and deterministic. And Everett heard that and was really influenced by that. And there were other people around that time that started talking about this idea of coming up with a comprehensive model that doesn't include humans, including the physicist David Bohm and so forth, who had different ideas. And you ever at one point just said, hey, wait a minute, what if a quantum state, which has multiple possibilities, multiple values, never really collapses, and it's connected in some ways to our quantum state, and we're all part of the same 
universal quantum wave function. So everything is connected and nothing collapses and everything just proceeds. Well, if somebody takes a measurement, let's say they're trying to measure the position of an electron and it could be the left of a detector to the right of the detector in the middle, you know, somewhere that the person who's measuring it um, does not collapse the wave function, but rather also has those three possibilities. So one version of them experiences the electron being to the left of the detector. One electron, uh, one version experiences the electron being to the right. One version experiences the electron being in the center. And those three versions bifurcate. They don't know about each other and they proceed for the rest of their lives to believe that they are correct and there's no way that they can communicate with each other. So it, I, I, Everett kind of talked about it using the analogy of an amoeba or a single-celled organism splitting and that if it had some kind of intelligence, each version would say, well, I'm the original amoeba. And the other one would say, no, I'm the original amoeba. But uh, if suppose there was a barrier and they couldn't communicate with each other, they would each be vain enough to think that they were the original one. Similarly, we're bifurcating all the time, according to Hugh Everett, but we just think this is the, un- the only universe because there's no way for us to have access to those the other universes. Now, another physicist who received Everett's paper was Bryce DeWitt, very hard-headed physicist, believed in objective reality, got the paper from Hugh Everett, said, hey, wait a minute, I don't experience this. This can't be right. And then Hugh Everett said, well, do you experience the world turning? Do you, do you feel like you're spinning around? And, and Bryce DeWitt said, touche, you're right. You know, not everything in reality is directly experienced. So maybe your proposal is correct. And that between 1957 and around 1970, uh, Bryce DeWitt thought about these ideas and finally was courageous enough to publish an article in the physics journal Physics Today, which was very influential. And he published another article about it and dubbed the model the many universes uh, in- interpretation of quantum mechanics, which soon became the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. So Bryce DeWitt was a very respected physicist. He promoted these ideas. Meanwhile, Hugh Everett, Uh, quit physics because he was really frustrated that no one believed in his ideas and went into the defense industry and uh, was still in the defense industry when the ideas really took off in the the 1970s and 1980s and finally made a triumphant speech at University of Texas uh, in the the 1980s uh, talking about his theory and and that was very well received. But sadly, he, he died at a fairly young age and isn't around today to talk about his theories. And Bryce DeWitt uh, passed away about uh, 20 years ago also, so isn't around to talk about this idea. But it's, it's taken off because of other physicists who promoted the theories. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I remember reading those, all those books, uh, The Dancing Wooly Masters, and The Tao of Physics, and The Turning Point. Read Joff Capra. I really like him. He was on the show. Uh, but there's something about this, you know, because they want to say, 
the observer is conscious, right? So consciousness has some role in the physical world. But your point is that it could just be a camera or a machine that's that's doing the observing. So there's not nothing sentient about the observer. Yeah. So the many worlds hypothesis does not come down on one side or the other about whether or not real consciousness exists. I mean, consciousness separate separated from the material world. Uh, so you can believe it's a separate substance. You can believe in souls. You can believe it's completely determined by the, your material uh, structure and so forth. It doesn't really say anything about that. But what it says is no matter what this thing is, you know, that says, gives us the illusion or reality, whatever, that we can take a measurement and decide on the measurement, it doesn't make any difference because uh, our reality is splitting all the time anyway. And that has nothing to do with the decisions we make uh, that, you know, to affect, you know, what happens to the things that we observe. Yeah, I remember reading one of Michael Crichton's novels, I think it was Timeline or something like that, where his Feynman-like character um, talks about the double slit experiment and how this allows you to then travel back in time to this other but it's not really your world earlier in time. It's another world that's it's really close to your world, but it's not the same, right? Well, we were re- really don't know. That's that's hypothetical. Oh. But in you know in recent years, there have been a lot of speculation about the idea of traversable wormholes, and physicists have shown that if you set up a traversable wormhole uh, in the right way, a wormhole is a little bit like a black hole, but it's traversable wormhole is designed so that you can pass through one end called a throat and uh, a sort of mouth pass through a throat and end up possibly in another region of the universe or another universe altogether it's all hypothetical but you can rig it up so that you can travel back in time in our universe so the debate is uh what would happen to the idea that you go back in time and try to do something to prevent yourself from existing, which is called the grandfather paradox. And suppose you went back in time and not to be morbid, you just convinced your grandparents, you know, that they weren't the right people for each other for some reason, or like, you know, um, you know, Marty and back to the futures somehow (laughs) interacted with their parents (laughs) and prevented themselves from existing. What would happen? Well, would you create a paradox with the universe just, blink out of existence or would something prevent you from doing that or would it create a new universe, a new branch of reality? So there's all sorts of science fiction speculation about that. But since we can't really travel through time into the past, we really don't know. So it's hypothetical. It's fun to think about the idea of going back in time and creating branching universes, but it's something we really don't know if that's possible or not. Yeah, I love this. You included Stephen Hawking's little invitation to the time travel party. You are cordially invited to a reception for time travelers, hosted by Professor Stephen Hawking to be held at the in the past at the University of Cambridge, uh, Gonville and KS College, Trinity Street, Cambridge, at 12 noon Universal Time, June 28th. 2009. No RSVP required. <laughs> That's really funny. Oh, yes. So this idea of, it, what, what did he call it, the conjecture pr- protector or something like that? What was Phrenology that? Phrenology uh, protection oh, the, conjecture. Yeah, so 
But that almost sounds like a force that's preventing you from time traveling. But wouldn't it just be that by the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, everything is is it's one directional. There's an arrow to time. So you'd have to redo every single atomic molecular interaction of everything that happened all the way back to wherever it is you want to go. So let's say you traveled back in time. You're at the beach. There's a sandcastle, and you've made it really nice. You want to travel back or it's now washed away and you want to travel back in time to where it was nicely structured, somehow the universe would have to re- reduce entropy, or uh, j- just the opposite of entropy. It'd have to be extropy to put all those sand grains back to the way they were. And just, you could use any example. I was thinking of this when I was reading your book. If I travel back to my childhood, to my parents' house where I grew up, well, that house is still there, but it's been remodeled a bunch of times, so it'd have to be unremodeled over and over <laughs> to every single molecule and grain of sand and paint and so on. This is just not possible in the universe we exist in, right? Well, it's, it's interesting because there are a lot of theories in physics that seem to be ironclad, but they contradict each other. So that's the fascinating part about modern physics. What is fundamental? So some people might conjecture that the law of non-decreasing entropy is, is somehow fundamental. Um, so Roger Penrose uh, talks about trying to find a way to build in entropy into um, general relativity, because in general relativity, Einstein's theory, everything is completely reversible. And also, time is almost on equal footing with space in Einstein's general theory of relativity. So Einstein's masterpiece is general theory of relativity, which has been shown experimentally to be correct in all tests so far, says that theoretically you can travel through time as well as space um, because you can you look at the universe as something like a block universe and you don't really have to distinguish between time and space. They're, they're all coordinates. And you can do these funny rotations where you switch space to time and time to space, like in the vicinity of, of a black hole, uh, suddenly the time axis and the space axis, one of the space axes, switch places. So from that perspective, there shouldn't be a law of entropy from, from pure general relativity because time is on par with space. In Penrose's modification of that, there is a reason for entropy to start off as zero and at the Big Bang and end up very high. And he has another idea called the conformal cyclic cosmology, where suddenly the universe is reborn again and entropy goes back down to zero again, so everything can cycle, which is very interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, particle physics does not necessarily distinguish between the past and the future. So there, there are a lot of aspects of physics that do have an arrow of time. There are aspects of physics that don't have an arrow of time. So the question is, is it an illusion? Is it fundamental? Is there a way to reconcile all the different versions of time and come up with a unified theory? Those are big questions in modern physics, and no one really has the answer today. Well, amazing. Uh, I mean, in the block universe theory, the universe is predetermined, right? I mean, if you just have this block, say, a loaf of bread here, that's the entire universe from Big Bang to present or future. And you just dive into one of them, let's say you're the deity, 
or your Maxwell's demon or whatever that is, <laughs> <laughs> Leibniz's demon, whoever that was. Uh, and, and so th- th- there can be no free will. This is how I enter this conversation because it's already been determined. You yeah. just don't know what the what the outcome of the movie is, but but the deity outside can see what the ending and is something like that. Is that as legitimate a theory of causality as that the universe is not predetermined? It is unfolding as we go from one moment to the next, and well, with entropy, there's a directionality uh, arrow to time. Well, it's the opposite to what the band Rush suggested when they said. They sang I Would Choose Free Will in one of their songs. <laughs> right. But Einstein clearly said in one of his final letters that he did not believe in free will, that the past, the present, and the future are all equally real, and that time is an illusion. That's what Einstein said. Well, Einstein wasn't always right, and his good friend Max Born, the person who coined the term quantum mechanics, said, hey, wait a minute, Albert. Um, does that mean that there's no such thing as free will? That sounds pretty oppressive to me if you're saying that this uh, deity, scientific deity that Einstein talked about, said that everything is determined for all time. That doesn't sound like a type of world I'd like to live in, said Max Born. I'm paraphrasing. But he wrote to Einstein and said, I really think that you need open-endedness. And he liked quantum mechanics, not because it included free will, but it included the possibility of free will. So Max Born liked that idea. And uh, so uh, there's a debate about that. Um, So um, if you had a strictly block universe, that's right, it would be completely deterministic. But, you know, a a lot of modifications have been made to that. And in fact, in the 1950s, when the first physicists were trying to unite quantum theory with general relativity— one of the first things they did is said, hey, this loaf of bread, that's all very well and fine, but we, that's not something we experience. Let's slice it up. So they found a mathematical way of slicing up the loaf of bread so that it's one slice at a time, which is the way we all experience the universe, one slice of time, one moment at a time. Yeah, the idea of free will is, uh, the question behind it is, could you have done otherwise? You know, so you have this idea of you rewind the tape and play it again. Well, you you know, as Dan Dennett pointed out, if it's a read-only memory tape, then yeah, it's going to be exactly what it is because it's just a recording of what actually happened. But you can't rewind the tape, that is to say, going forward, no circumstances for whatever it is you're choosing will ever exactly be the same. And furthermore, you're a participant in it, and you're aware of what happened last time when these circumstances were similar, and now here they are again, close to that. But I remember I made the wrong decision last time, so this time I'm going to do this other thing, knowing what happened last time. So you're a participant in the universe. Well, that that brings up the cultural idea of the multiverse, which is very different from the scientific idea. The cultural idea of multiverses is how, what would have happened if I made a different decision? Like, you know, uh, so what would happen if instead of the job I have right now, you know, I was washing dishes for McDonald's, or I guess they use, they didn't use dishes, but, you know, <laughs> tossing paper plates for McDonald's, then we wouldn't be talking right now unless you were driving up to a McDonald's. Or <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I made that decision, or any decision, will my life be better, worse, 
And we all wonder about these what-if scenarios, and that's why a lot of books about alternative universe ideas or multiverse ideas play on that idea. What would happen if the South had won the Civil War? What would you know the United States be like today? Uh, what would have happened if, if Hitler had defeated the Allies, um, which, of course, is a premise of Philip K. Dick's uh, great work, The Man in the High Castle, so a lot of great science fiction speculates about different branches of reality. And a lot of movies today talk about this. For example, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which uh, won a record number of Oscars and was a very imaginative movie, imagines what would happen if somebody who runs a laundromat, uh, Evelyn, uh, could picture and uh, even encounter an experience all of the other realities where she had a different path in life, you know, such as becoming a singer, becoming a chef, becoming a martial artist. And somehow she manages to incorporate all of these properties into a s- same person, uh, which is a really weird idea. Now, no scientist today, as far as I know, talks about accessing these alternatives and saying like, well, we're developing a portal to a reality in which, uh, for example, Donald Trump did not win the election in you know, 2016 or something like that. Nobody is talking about that. People can imagine it, they, they can speculate ab- about it. But uh, you know, these, are, these are ruminations, these are fancy, fanciful things. They're not connected to science, which is a problem for scientists to embrace multiverse ideas because you know, some people in the general public think that what they're advocating is the idea that we can access their alternative realities and that there are, you know, multiple Spider-Man, <laughs> like, you know, into the Spider-Verse suggested, suggests, or multiple versions of us that we can talk to and access. And none of the scientific ideas of the multiverse imagine a way of, for us to uh, meet our doppelganger except maybe the, the very far-reaching idea of traveling back in time in a wormhole and somehow meeting yourself that way. But you know, most of these multiverse ideas says either the all other universes are completely inaccessible because they're incredibly far away from us, multiple billions or even trillions of light years away from us, or they're in this other quantum branch of reality that we can't really access. Well, I, I like the idea of counterfactual causality, what if, because it does allow you to play with different scenarios in which uh, you remove one effect, uh, you remove one cause to see what the, how the effect might change. But what is it that you know determined the outcome of the Civil War? And some people put it at this moment at before the Battle of Antietam Sharpsburg, when things were kind of hanging in the balance. And I think uh, Lee's plans were wrapped in a cigar box or something, and they fell out of the bag of the courier on his horse, and the northern troops found it. And so McClellan got Lee's plans, was able to thwart his invasion and so on, and that was their turning point. But, of course, that, that depends on when in the timeline the crucial contingent event happens. You know, if if that happened during, I don't know, Sherman's march to the sea when it was pretty much a done deal, what was going to happen probably wouldn't have made any difference at all. 
but but the, at least as a thought experiment, which is legitimate in physics, right? I mean, Einstein did famous thought experiments. Yes. That's okay. Um, you know, kind of it's like that door uh, that movie you were talking about films along this line, sliding doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. Right. Um, you know, I like that because you know just that one moment where she's coming down the stairs and there's somebody coming up, a mom with a a, a pram or a, a, a baby carrier thing. And she has to go around it, and that split second means she misses the subway as the sliding doors close. Or she makes it, and then she finds out her boyfriend is having an affair. So, so there's two different scenarios. She finds out he's cheating on her, or she doesn't, and then has different outcomes. Of course, you're correct. You can't, we can't play it both out. One happens, and then, and then, the, then life goes on, and, and it just seems like that's the way it had to be, however that turns out. So we're really talking about two different things. What's theoretically possible? That's not theoretically possible to have both of them. Um, but it, it's almost like that. Uh, my favorite example from Tim Tim mentioned the singer songwriter. He has this uh, amusing song about his wife. If I hadn't met you, all these wonderful things wouldn't have happened, right? And he goes through the first half of the song is all all about that. And he says, of course, if I hadn't met you, I would have met somebody else. And they maybe she was she'd have been taller than you, but not as good looking, more athletic, but not as funny. And whatever had happened, you'd go, well, that's the way it had to be. And look what all the contingent events that led me to meet you. But you'd say that about anybody you met, right? So whatever happens, we look back and go, oh, it's unbelievable. I turned left instead of right, or I took this course and met that professor instead of this other one. I ended up in physics instead of psychology, whatever it would be. Um, you inevitably look back and go, well, it had to be that way. Yes. Uh, well, I, I love the film Sliding Doors. I, I saw it again recently. I, I, I wrote uh, an article um, which should be out uh, by the time this is this is broadcast um, for um, new scientists about um, multi the best multiverse movies in my opinion. So I watched a lot of multiverse movies, and I ranked Sliding Doors as up there. And uh, the question that that it raises it raises many questions. I don't want to give too much away in case people haven't seen it. But the question is, if we feel lucky about something, does that necessarily mean that was the right branch or the, the best branch. So if you uh, just make a subway train and you just about make it, you say, oh, wow, I'm so lucky. But, you know, of course, if, if, you know, sadly enough, that train was one that was in an accident a few minutes later, you'd feel, you know, oh my God, you know, if only I didn't make it through those doors, I wouldn't have been on this train. So it's, it's sobering to think that sometimes, some moments you think, oh, I was so lucky for that, might have led to a you know, branch of reality, if there, there is such a thing, which ended up with a very poor outcome, whereas things that you thought were unlucky, like missing a train or you know, not meeting someone or getting rejected from a job, turn out to be the best course after all. We, we just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Seth MacFarlane, the creator of Family Guy and, and uh, the Orville and so on, uh, tells a funny story, not a funny story, but a potentially tragic one, where he, he was out partying in Boston uh, on September 10th, uh, 2001. And he was sort of hungover, and he missed his flight back to L.A., which was the flight, you know, one of the flights that went into the World Trade Center building. So he would have been on that plane. So he looks back, well, good thing I was hungover. <laughs> you know, it's like one of those weird contingent events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... It's, it's frightening, and that's why the idea of, in culture, the idea of a multiverse in which all these outcomes are out there, these other outcomes, 
is is truly fascinating to us because also in in one of the multiverse uh, versions, all those things do happen. Every possible thing can happen, right? Well, in in a scientific version, uh, you know uh, the the Everett hypothesis, all the quantum possibilities happen, but the differences are so subtle that we can't really say that you know you know for a particular event that that was life changing. So, for example, if your job is to measure a blip on a screen due to whether or not an electron is going one way or the other way, one version might see one kind of blip and the other might see another kind of blip. So it'd be nothing to write home about unless that turned out to be you know, a pivotal moment in history. You made a discovery based upon that one experiment, which is unlikely since most discoveries are made, you know, from experiments are made from multiple experiments. So it's not like uh, in the Everett hypothesis, you'd have one branch in which you're, you know, wealthy and the other branch, you know, which you're poor, as much as the self-help people who, you know, exploit the idea of quantum physics to try to, to sell their products and say, okay, you can use quantum physics to get rich or you can use it to live forever or whatever, you know, as much as, you know, some hucksters might try to purport that. In fact, the differences between the two quantum realities, even in the Everett model, are extremely subtle. What are some of the other uh, of your favorite multiverse movies while we're on it? Oh, uh, well, uh, I, I really like uh, uh, Run, Lola, Run, Donnie Darko, uh, Back to the Future has a kind of multiverse scenario. Uh, in it, uh, 12 Monkeys kind of imagines, you know, whether or not reality is flexible or changeable. So it's still, but at the end of the movie, you know, a bit of an open question. Um, the Matrix imagines, you know, alternative realities based upon uh, this idea of artificial intelligence creating a universe. Um, there's everything everywhere all at once, which I like conceptually. And I recently saw... Uh, the first into the uh, Spider Verse movie, Into the Spider Verse, which I loved, and that's a really fun movie about the idea of multiple uh, Spider Men. <laughs> so that's that's, that's really that that's one. a really cool one. I forgot about Run Lola Run. That was that was similar to Sliding Doors, if I recall. And I think yeah. it came out the same year, so something oh, wow. was in the air about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about multiple dimensions and the multiverse. Here you have. If I can show this on the camera, you have the, the kind of line land from flat land, and then I guess this would be flat land, and then the sphere land or cube land, and this would be, I don't know what you call that. but um, Hypercube land. Could you actually make that? Kind of washed out there, but um, could you actually make something like that in 3D, or are we talking about something that you can't really make in three dimensions? Well, you can look at a projection of the fourth dimension onto a three-dimensional object. So uh, one way of envisioning the fourth dimension is to imagine a shadow of it onto a three-dimensional object, which is um, just like we um, can hold, we can take a hollow cube and hold the light up to it and form a shadow on a wall. Yeah, I could do that. So there, there would be the shadow. Wow. Instant That's experiment. <laughs> Yeah, so this is what Plato imagined 
way back when with his cave allegory. Imagine somebody, prisoners in a cave, and they have no access to the outside world, and they see shadows of people walking by, and they think the shadows are reality. So maybe the three-dimensional things we see are somehow shadows of a higher-dimensional reality, which is kind of weird to think about. But another way of thinking of the fourth dimension is to imagine three-dimensional things changing in time. So if you took a balloon and you started blowing it up bigger and bigger and bigger, and you somehow uh, cemented together all the different times of the balloon, so you had tiny balloon, a little bit bigger balloon, a little bit bigger balloon, giant balloon, and then deflating balloon, and so forth. If, if you somehow linked all those things together, you would create this fourth-dimensional object, which would be represented, uh, representative of an expanding and then contracting balloon, which is pretty weird to think about, too. <laughs> it's really weird. But multi-dimensions are weird. So again, it's back to this math versus you know physical reality. You know, how do you know that there are multiple dimensions? Is it just an extension of the equations of the math that proves they have to be there or something like that? Well, there's extensions, there's theoretical ideas, which a lot of theorists believe, but then experimentalists said, how, will you, how do you test these ideas? And uh, there's, there's some ideas that gravitation uh, leaks into a higher dimension, which explains why gravity is so much weaker than the other forces. Gravity is incredibly weaker than the other forces, which you can see using a simple experiment if you try to pick up a paperclip with a refrigerator magnet, and then you launch in that as a battle between the Earth's gravity and the refrigerator magnet's uh, magnetic force. Uh, the refrigerator magnet will win, and so it could be- beats the Earth, which means that Earth's gravitation is overpowered by the magnetism of a refrigerator magnet, which shows how weak gravitation is compared to magnetism. And and anyway, uh, theorists came up with this idea that gravity leaks into a higher dimension. Well, how do you prove that? Well, maybe through collision experiments, some energy is missing. And if you reel out all other possibilities, maybe that energy leaked into a higher dimension. So there have been tests of that, uh, tests of resonances, which is something like when you strike a note on, let's say, a xylophone, you might hear higher tones. So maybe you might experience higher energy resonances in higher dim- from a higher dimension. And all these weird ideas and tests in the Large Hadron Collider have been trying to determine whether these are real or not. And so far, as far as we know, all the tests came out negative. But theorists still won't give up and, say, and they say, well, let's propose more tests and so forth. So there are ways of possibly testing these ideas. And theorists have not given up yet on the idea of unseen higher dimensions. So weird. I mean, so much of this stuff is weird, but maybe there's just different ways of coming at the nature of reality. In your previous book, I was looking at my notes of that. You talked about the friendship of Wolfgang Pauli and Carl Jung in their correspondence. I mean, that itself is a weird thing, but maybe we should be more open to, I don't know, gurus or, or, or you know, people that do magic mushrooms or ayahuasca or, you know, I don't know, people that try to access reality through different means other than science. 
you know, maybe that's not totally crazy. I mean, as, as skeptics tend to say, oh, that's just a bunch of baloney. But, you know, maybe it's not entirely. Maybe we shouldn't be completely closed off, given everything you've just said. It's like, how do I know any of this stuff is true? Well, we need to be humble, but we also need to come up with models. And, uh, you know, and, and you know, if a model is, you know, perfectly valid and testable through, within its within its limits of observability, but there are also things out there that are non-observable but still match the model, then we might conclude, well, even though there are non-observable things, it's still a good model. Like, for instance, we know that the Earth has all this material inside it, you know, as a core and uh, different layer, various layers, and some of that has been tested, but... We can't say that every inch of the Earth's interior has been probed and tested. So we just kind of deduce that, you know, it, the Earth must have solid regions, liquid regions, and so forth uh, from the tests we can do and just assume that that's true for all of Earth's interior. So we, we often deduce things from what we can observe. Uh, but that doesn't mean we should talk about things in which there are no ways to test it or things that, that testability has turned out completely negative so far, such as, for example, the idea of telepathy. Nobody has come up with um, you know, experiments that have conclusively shown that telepathy is, is valid. So, um, so most uh, scientists or physicists would, would not consider that within the realm of science. Yeah, this is my beef with the words paranormal and supernatural, those are just words we're using to describe something we don't understand or some unexplained mystery or there's nothing to explain. It's just an artifact of, of, of confirmation bias or whatever. Um, and, and so like I use the example of dark energy and dark matter. You guys don't mean that as an answer to a problem. Those are just linguistic placeholders until you figure out what it is that's you know causing the galaxies to hold together or the universe to expand it accelerating rate and so on you know so it comes down to what those words actually mean yeah to go back to the your quote from donald rumsfeld those are the known unknowns so yeah we know that there that something's out there we just don't know what so we keep doing tests uh we're not really not satisfied by having unknown things out there there is a theory this um sort of quantum consciousness theory where the you know, collapse of the wave function inside neurons, inside the microtubules inside neurons. This is Stuart Hameroff and, and Roger Penrose's idea um, that somehow that uh, wave function leaves my skull and goes into your skull and we can read each other's minds or whatever. I don't think any of this is true because there's nothing that needs explaining. You can't, I can't, people can't read each other's thoughts. But if they could, and that was the explanation. That wouldn't be paranormal or ESP. That would just be, I don't know, quantum physics or you know, quantum consciousness or something like that. Yeah, there are physicists who speculated about that, but I have to say, um, knowing people in the psychology neuroscience community, uh, there's it really hasn't that idea really hasn't taken off in in neuroscience and so forth. You know, yeah. which is is more using things like functional MRIs to try to pinpoint you know where the brain enacts certain processes do you have your own theories of consciousness how you explain it i i call it one of the greatest mysteries so i don't speculate about it i i i find it 
you know, every day I find it amazing. And sometimes, you know, when I'm driving to work, I, I kind of test it. I say, well, you know, I, I, I like to plot out on my own. I, I know I'm a minority these days. I don't use a GPS. I just kind of figure out the route or take the same route. And sometimes I just say, you know, just for the heck of it, I'm just going to, you know, take a different route today or something. And then I feel kind of like, well, at least in my own illusion, I've exercised my free will <laughs> and exercised my right to choose the route. So, um, so that's, that's kind of important to me to feel like I'm doing something with free will, even if it turns out to be false. Well, I think that, again, is one of those, I think consciousness, free will, and God are three, and why there's something rather than nothing are these kind of known unknowables. In, in part, not that we can't solve it because it's really hard. I mean, it's conceptually, I don't know, misframed or presented in a way that can't be explained. I mean, if, if that word means something, volition, freedom, free will, but we live in a determined universe, then what are, what are we even talking about? It's not possible. But it's an illusion, and it's a useful fiction. You certainly feel free. I don't know any determinist that actually acts like they're determined. They act like they're free, like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> right? And uh, I think, again, back to my explanation earlier, if the universe is not predetermined, my, my theory depends on that, then you can't replicate the past exactly, and you are part of the, you know, the moment-to-moment, you know, participating in the kind of self-determined universe you might might think and i think consciousness is also one of those misconceived ideas that you know as my read the same as your read it suggests that almost a dualism like there's a little homunculus in me a little mini me that can, <laughs> a little ghost in the machine that can go over into your skull to see on the cartesian theater as dennett calls it of your mind and like oh look his red looks like my red this is r- a ridiculous idea this is not possible <laughs> Yeah, so so as a physicist, I don't I don't really speculate about you know areas in neuroscience, psychology, and and I also think that consciousness is one of the greatest mysteries. And I'm I'd be really shocked if somebody came up with an explanation. And uh, when people talk about trying to program artificial intelligence to have consciousness, I, I wait. I think wait, wait a minute. Even if some kind of network said I am conscious. Why would we believe that? And you, you could very easily write a simple program, any of us could do it, that just says, you know, hello, I am conscious. <laughs> and like, why believe this program? And if it's a very sophisticated program, incredibly sophisticated, that takes in all this data and still says, hello, I am conscious, why would we believe it in that case even? Yeah. Well, that's the other mind's problem. How do you know? that I'm sentient and conscious. You don't. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the philosophical zombie, you know, you're the only one that's sentient, everybody else is a zombie. No one's yeah. home. <laughs> I just kind of assume that other human beings are similar to me, which is, you know, a very important working assumption to get through life, uh, <laughs> that everybody yeah. is conscious. But I would not assume that an algorithm is conscious because I have no experience with that. Yeah, my example is uh, when Watson won Jeopardy. I'm a big Jeopardy fan, so that was a big moment. You know, does Watson know that it won Jeopardy? Does it know that it beat the great Ken Jennings, the greatest Jeopardy player of all time? No, it doesn't even know it's playing Jeopardy. It doesn't even know what Jeopardy is. Yes. Right? It's just an algorithm scraping Wikipedia, mostly, I guess, to get the best answers. Oh, yes. Right. 
Yes. <laughs> so we, we don't we don't know how to, how to test that. Okay. Another uh, the last uh, uh, known unknowables: eternity and uh, infinity. I mean, what what do you guys mean by these words, and how can we ever wrap our minds around that? Well, uh, in my book, I try not to use the word infinite or eternal um, unless let someone else use that term. Like if they talk, if someone talked about eternal cycles or a universe that's infinite, um, that's very speculative. Um, so I, I like to use the word unlimited or you know testably unlimited or you know just just because we really don't know, it's hard to wrap our minds around something that's infinite. But I do mention in one of the chapters of my book this idea by Hilbert of of a hotel with an infinite number of rooms. And if that were possible, then even if all the rooms were technically full, that by moving one person over to the next room and then the next person to the next room, you could uh, theoretically accommodate an unlimited number of people, uh, which would be v- very interesting. And uh, in a way, the theoretical foundation of quantum physics, which is called Hilbert Space, is something like Hilbert's Hotel with an unlimited number of rooms, which is really odd. But in some aspects of quantum physics, you have these um, spaces which have an unlimited number of dimensions and an unlimited number of possibilities. So weird. Yeah, I, I was watching one of those Netflix documentaries on eternity. I forget what it was called, but Adventures in Eternity or Infinity or something like that. And it's just so bizarre. Like everything that could possibly happen will absolutely happen because if you have no limit to time or space, and it's like, okay, again, it's like, why is there something rather than nothing? At some point, I don't even know what these words mean. Yeah. Well, I expect to be back on your show again, again and again. For, <laughs> when you figure it out. Throughout eternity, even if you don't invite me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we will have this conversation yes. <laughs> again. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, so much of this also seems context dependent you know this is 20 you know 21st century physics right now you're giving us the best in your book that what we know now i mean if you wrote this book 100 years from now or 500 years from now or 5000 years from now i mean it could be completely different and you look back and go look what those people thought back in the 21st century early 21st century this is crazy what they believed you know something like before newton you know how, how the, the people before newton or just say in the late middle ages or something thought about physics and the universe and stuff is just so completely different than ours. Yeah. And I'm hoping that people in that far future still read books. Yeah, so that's right. an open question too. Um, I suppose but so. <laughs> hopefully that will be that, that art will of reading will still be preserved <laughs> or it'll just be beamed into our, our chips that are in the brain. If, if, if we're not completely AI ourselves. Yes. <laughs> All right, Paul, this is great stuff. I love the book. I love all these these big topics. What's, what are you working on next? Well, I, as, as I said, I'm re- releasing, uh, I guess I just finished it, but an article about the best uh, oh, yeah. multiverse movies. But right now I'm kind of taking a break from thinking about new projects just to <laughs> because I'm excited about this new book, The Allure of the Multiverse. Yeah, nice. And I'm doing you know, a number of uh, you know, uh, events, in-person events, Mostly in the Pennsylvania area, if you're in Pennsylvania, but uh, but hopefully in other places too. And I'm uh, very excited about the release of the book and the reaction to it. 
The Allure yeah, of the Multiverse. Here it is again, The Allure of the Multiverse. Go get it. It's a great read. Uh, I think the audio... Uh, did, do you read the audio version? No, it's, a, it's another Paul, Paul Woodson. Oh, okay. I don't know him, but he's a, <laughs> right. a voice actor. So he's nice. a Paul in another universe where I had a different last name and had a different different occupation, <laughs> voice actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great alright Paul that's good thanks for coming on to talk about this my pleasure pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer ba-da-ba-ba-ba